Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee. And I'm David Lipton. Today, our guest is Andrew Huberman, Assistant Professor of Neurosciences at University of California, San Diego. In this episode, we will talk about visual system development, really following your gut interests, and theory of mind in cuttlefish. All this and more coming up. We're here with Andrew Huberman, Assistant Professor of Neurosciences at UCSD. Thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Huberman. It's my pleasure. Usually we like to start the interview by talking a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and were you interested in science as a kid? I actually grew up in Palo Alto. Ah. <laughs> wow. I went to elementary school, nursery school, elementary school, and junior high school and high school in Palo Alto. Alley across the street from uh, Stanford or? I went to Gunn High School uh, okay. at that time. Yeah, very close. We yeah. stint at Pally, but I lived right over the fence from Gunn High School. I had a trap door into the back parking lot. Oh, wow. <laughs> which was cool. In our backyard growing up, there were usually anywhere from 10 to 50 kids during lunchtime. Uh-huh. Mom used to cook for us and, and make us food, and she loved having a big crowd of kids there. So, <laughs> so it was kind of the off-campus campus. Uh, I grew up in Palo Alto and I was exposed to academics and science at a, at a pretty young age. My father was a theoretical physicist, an experimental physicist turned theoretical physicist, and he still maintains an affiliation with Stanford in applied physics, but he worked for kind of a think tank slash company, which was Xerox Park. If any of you read the Steve Jobs book, Park is where Steve Jobs uh, first uh, laid eyes on the the GUI, the graphical interface that would allow different things to be moved around on the screen of a computer. It was a place that was famous for great ideas that were walked out the door and were marketed by other people. And my dad's always run a lab. He's worked on a variety of problems. And I grew up, you know, going on sabbaticals with, as a family, having graduate. This was in the days when things were a little different. Graduate students would have dinner at our house regularly. Postdocs would come to the house regularly and colleagues. And I grew up, you know, overhearing conversations at the dinner table about physics and about physicists and about science and the sociology of science. So I was born into this at some level. And I've always been interested in animals and biology. I'm fascinated by animal behavior. If there's time, we can maybe even talk about, we have a pretty exciting set of uh, quote-unquote side projects on cuttlefish and prey capture in the lab. And I've always been fascinated by animals. The stranger the animal and the more specialized the behavior of the animal, the, the more interesting to me. So at a young age, I suppose there were hints that I might become a biologist. My dad likes to tell the story that I said, I think I was eight or nine, he used to walk me down the street to go to kindergarten and uh, first grade. And I think he, we were talking about what he does and I said, well, what don't we know? And he said, well, we don't know how the brain works. And I said, well, I want to work on that. So I actually remember that conversation, but as we all know, memories are kind of tricky. So there was a, a seed for, for an interest in science early on, but it really, that seed didn't really get watered um, consistently until I was in college, actually. Um, most of my junior high school years and high school years, I was really excited about writing, creative writing. I wanted to be a journalist. Um, but it wasn't until I was in university that I took a class in neuroscience and I got hooked and uh, never looked back. I see. And, and where was this? So, right. So my academic trajectory was sort of interesting. First of all, I'll say where I really wanted to go to school was at Whitman up in Walla Walla, Washington. This, they have a great journalism program. The UC system in California is so strong as a public school system. And my dad's a, a, a he's from Argentina. He's an immigrant. He, he thought it was sort of crazy to pay these top dollar tuition fees to go, go to a place like that. And he said, you know, we've got this great UC system. I applied to a number of UCs. I got into a good number of them. I, I, I confess. And Ben Barris has always asked me, you know, what rank were you in high school? And Oh, and oh. I, I have no idea, and I probably don't want to know. <laughs> well, gun, gun High School is a pretty competitive place. It's a pretty competitive yeah. place. <laughs> Always that competitive. I don't want to know. I, I, <laughs> I performed well in high school, but I'll be quite honest, since this is a personal interview, I went to UC Santa Barbara, not because it was the best school that I got into, although things turned out really well there, and I can tell you how, but because my high school girlfriend, who I was deeply in love with, went there. And she was a year ahead of me, and she went there because, she could bring her horse and, um, and I followed my heart 
and I went off to UC Santa Barbara, which to be honest, was a, a beautiful place, not as academically rigorous at that time as I would have liked, but I got very lucky. I took this course from a, a tremendously good professor, Harry Carlisle, who was, you know, this was the early 90s, and the book Listening to Prozac had just come out. You know, that now we're all familiar with people taking antidepressants and the idea that, that neuro- neuropsychiatric disease is somehow related to the brain. But at that time, you know, it was sort of first hitting the mainstream, and he was lecturing about depression, schizophrenia, alcoholism. I had the, um, through things that we don't have time to get into here, I had the unfortunate um, experience of having a, a couple of close friends get seriously mentally ill. One I grew up with in Palo Alto, but became schizophrenic. Another one became badly depressed and committed suicide. And so when he started telling me that there were actually brain mechanisms and explaining some of the neurotransmitter basis or hypothesized circuits for these sorts of things. I was just completely drawn in and he was a marvelous lecturer. I went to work in his lab immediately and maybe in part because there weren't a million super, super ambitious uh, pre-med undergrads at that time. I think Santa Barbara has become quite competitive now. There's a sheer number of people applying to school, but because of that, he gave me space in the lab. He gave me a small budget. I started running experiments and we did experiments looking at the role of MDMA ecstasy in temperature regulation. This is a time when MDMA ecstasy was first on the scene as a uh, recreational drug. And there were kids dropping dead from overheating, not from the direct effects of the drug on, say, neurotoxicity or something like that. That's still, I believe, an open question whether or not it's neurotoxic. But I was able to do experiments. and sort of be, I was treated like a graduate student. We wrote a paper together. I gave a little mini seminar. I started hanging out with graduate students. And so for me, UC Santa Barbara turned out to be the perfect place to cultivate my interest in science and biology. Although I, I confess I was a little lonely there because as an undergraduate who was extremely driven to learn as much as I could and I really wanted to be enmeshed in a very intellectually rich environment, the things like surfing and uh, what wide-scale alcohol abuse didn't, just didn't appeal to me. So it was, a, it was a little lonely on the other hand and at the same time I really felt like I found my place in the world in terms of uh, what I wanted to pursue in ter- for my career and my passions. That's, uh, it's really cool to hear your sort of large, you know, personal motivations for getting into neuroscience. Once you started your graduate work at UC Davis and you started working with Barbara Chapman and uh, Leo uh, Kalupa, you started working on vision. What was sort of the jump from being interested in problems of emotion and, you know, and drugs drugs (laughs) to to then going to study vision? And was it the the sense per se or was it using it as a system to, to get to bigger questions that really inspired you? Yeah, so there's an intermediate story that explains that step, and it actually has direct relevance to Stanford. When I was an undergraduate, I would come home during the summers, and I worked in Emmanuel Mignon's lab, the sleep narcolepsy lab. This was a time when he was maintaining a large colony of Doberman pinchers that were narcoleptic, and that's before they had identified the mutation Right. A specific mutation in narcolepsy, which turned out to be hypocretin orexin uh-huh. and, and, and the receptor. So I spent a summer doing research there. I was really hooked on this stuff, and I had the sense that I wanted to go to graduate school, and when I went back to Santa Barbara after that summer, I was convinced I wanted to do a PhD, and I applied around, and I actually got into the, there was a behavioral neuroscience program at Berkeley that preceded the current neuroscience program. So I applied and got in, and I was really excited. I, I also happened in, I knew Berkeley, loved the Bay Area, and so I, I went up to Berkeley, and I joined a lab working on neuroendocrine function and circadian rhythms. I was, I was also interested in circadian biology. This is a particularly exciting time for circadian biology because the origin of the cells in the eye that control circadian entrainment and so forth hadn't yet been discovered. It was chosen as sort of the topic of the year in science. I was reading Science and Nature all the time. And I wanted to be at Berkeley, and I knew they also had a good vision group. The reason I got into vision is through the developmental neurobiology route. I took a course, which was a marvelous course, an evening course in developmental neurobiology for graduate students, which was taught by Corey Goodman and Carla Schatz. And this was still today the most incredible course. So it was taught entirely on the chalkboard or on the whiteboard. And, you know, here we have Corey Goodman and Carla Schatz teaching developmental neurobiology. And I took this because I was interested in developmental mechanisms and I was interested in neuroscience. And there I learned about axon guidance. I learned about activity-dependent development. I learned about development of the neuromuscular junction, 
I learned about inside out gradients of neurogenesis and the cortex, all the stuff you, all the textbook knowledge in, in developmental neurobiology, but the way they would teach it was very unique. They would cold call on people and they would uh, use that cold calling as a way to design and explain experiments in the field. And so we would do experiments on the board. I still uh, do with the people in my lab, which I consider extremely valuable. And this was the time, keep in mind, so this is the, the late 90, mid to late 90s. Keep in mind, this is when all the slits and robos were coming out. Retinal waves had been discovered and now we're being studied in detail and their implications for brain wiring were being studied in detail. And so every week, it seemed, there was not just one, but two or three cell papers and a science paper and a nature paper and a neuron paper. We had a guest lecture from Mark Tessier Levine. So he came over across the bay and told us about what was going on with netrons. And I mean, it's just amazing, amazing opportunity. And so at the end of that course, I went to Carla and I was in a different program. Most of the students in that program were molecular biology. So I was a little bit shy about my lack of knowledge in molecular biology. And I went to Carla and I said, you know, I love this stuff. And I would, I would, do anything to work on this stuff. I was just convinced. You know, I'm somebody, when I feel something in my gut or an excitement, I know that's the thread to follow. And she was marvelous. She said, well, why don't you come around to my lab and talk to some of my people and see what we do and get to know us. And so, you know, she didn't invite me into the lab to be a regular member. I already had a lab, but I started doing some experiments with someone in her lab, a postdoc named Dave Stellwagen. Yeah. And hanging around her lab, hanging around her lab. And at one point I said, you know, I would really like to do this stuff. She said, well, I hate to tell you this, but I'm heading off to Harvard. <laughs> and I said, well, is there anyone else around here that's doing anything like this? And she said, well, Corey's leaving too. And <laughs> Serafini, this was who just, you know, Tito had just published the paper. Peter Scheifler was the postdoc in this lab who had published the Neuroligan Nurexin link, the first genetic molecules identified at that time. I think it was to induce presynaptic differentiation. And so I was kind of disappointed. I thought, oh no, you know, everyone's leaving. I want to do this stuff. And she said, but I have an idea for you. So I really have to thank and credit Carla for this. She said, I have an idea. You know, you could go talk to a couple people in the Bay Area at other institutions. And one person I think you might want to talk to is Barbara Chapman, who's up at Davis, because she just finished up in Mike Stryker's lab and she's doing stuff kind of similar in a different system and the same flavor of experiments. And it might also give you the chance to ramp up your knowledge in developmental neurobiology yeah. even more, get some, some skills and some uh, in molecular biology and make the transition from behavioral neuroscience to, to hardcore neuroscience. And so I went home, uh, I told my, my girlfriend at that time, I said, you know, so I'm thinking about going and talking to someone up at Davis and, and she said, Davis, you know, <laughs> she was from, she was European and she loved Berkeley. We both loved Berkeley. And she said, Davis, Davis is where we stop for hamburgers on the way to Tahoe. <laughs> and I, and I said, no, 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 I, I really think there's something there. And I don't want to leave Berkeley either. I love Berkeley, but this is great advice from, from an amazing source. I'm going to go up there and uh, I'm going to check it out. So I went up there and I met with a couple people in the department, the first thing they said is, why would you leave Berkeley to come here? <laughs> Not that Davis is a great place, but you know, it's a little strange, right? Why would you, why would you move? And I said, you know, I, I'm just really excited about these issues and there's no one right there. There were other good developmental neurobiologists at Berkeley, don't get me wrong, but no one of that caliber and certainly no one working on those issues. And I knew right. I wanted to study visual system development yeah. at that point. So I met Barbara and immediately felt great chemistry. I hit it off with Barbara right away. She said, well, right. I just set up my lab. I have a grant and I've got room for somebody. And we started talking projects immediately. And she said, it'd be great if you come here. And so I went back, I explained the logic and we moved up there and I did collaborate with Leo. Leo was a sort of co-mentor, but my official, official PhD mentor was Barbara. And I'm not boasting here, I'm just simply stating the facts. I was so excited and passionate about the work of studying activity-dependent development of the visual system, you know, that I, in four years, I enjoyed the most productive period of my career. I, I actually lived in the lab. I genuinely lived in the lab. I had a cot in the office. I eventually moved out when they found out. You know, we published close to eight primary research papers and out of four years of work and and but I was absolutely ravenous for the topic and I lived and breathed it and it was a marvelous time in my career I would say to anybody what you do in your teens 
you know, will influence you emotionally forever. What you do in your 20s will influence your career and 30s, of course, but you should really harness your excitement for something and run with it because there's nothing like that feeling where you literally don't want to go to sleep at night because you're so excited about what you're doing. And not that that tapers off as, as one ages, but other things start to enter the picture. And I was completely unbridled in terms of what, you know, my time was open. I didn't, I didn't have a dog. I didn't even have a pet. You know, I just wanted, it was neuroscience, neuroscience, neuroscience. It was marvelous. I have no regrets. Those are amazingly inspirational words. It seems like you, you, uh, you interacted with a lot of critical people and the development of neuroscience and neurodevelopment. That's uh, that's really amazing. Let's get into maybe what some of what you actually did in Barbara Chapman's lab. Why that question of the role of activity in development was that initial thing that prompted you to get a cot and put it in the lab. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's interesting. The retinal waves were really intriguing and really exciting. So that was Marla Feller in Carla Schatz's lab. She did. That was right. So the story of waves was. That was that was Carla's lab's discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it, it, that that had been established, and then I think it was be you know it's a little hard to understand you know to really micro dissect out what leads into these very strong emotional connections to things. So so let, let me let me give you a rational answer and a non rational answer. The rational answer is that the waves have been discovered, and there was a beautiful still one of my very favorite papers by Annie Penn, who was a graduate student in Carla's lab. She's in pediatrics there now at Stanford for some time. She has her own lab. Looking at what happens when you block neural activity in the developing ferret eyes in terms of the segregation of binocular inputs to the thalamus. And basically that paper, this was published in Science in 1998, that paper nailed the issue of whether or not activity was required at the level of the retina, in my opinion, it nailed it, the level of the retina and that there was binocular competition in order to sort out axons from the right and left eye into these separate domains. What it left open was whether or not the wave pattern of activity was important, the propagating activity. Now, Dave Stellwagen, the very graduate student who had assisted and kind of weaned me into the the techniques in the field from the generous invitation of Carla to work with him, had published a paper where you could increase wave frequency in one eye and show that it was the relative balance of activity in the two eyes, and it's as opposed to some threshold level or requirement for activity that was important. And that was an extremely important experiment and a beautiful experiment. It was worked out through some hard pharmacology first to determine what receptors, turns out it's adenosine receptors, could impact the size and, and speed of the wave. Waves. But there was still this question of whether or not you needed a wave or whether or not the waves were irrelevant. And so my, the first thing I did when I got to Barbara's lab was actually not directly related to waves. It was to essentially repeat the Annie Penn study and then just ask if you block activity in the two eyes and prevent eye segregation. But what would happen if you waited some period of time? and allowed activity to recover, what, what would happen? Would the axons eventually sort out? In other words, is, that, is there truly a c- critical period for eye-specific segregation, or are there compensatory mechanisms that could kick in and, and segregate out the, the connections? So that was the first experiment we did, and it turns out that there is a critical period, not for the segregation, but the proper placement of the axons within the target, and, th- and that was informative. Hmm. So restoring activity didn't actually restore the segregation. That's right. If you, if, when activity comes back, it rescues the segregation at any stage. But the pattern of segregation, instead of being these really nice eye-specific layers, was kind of patchy and salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. It wasn't nicely organized. And so that mm-hmm. probably has implications for wiring of other components of the visual pathway. And in fact, it does. Later, we published a paper in Neuron showing that that specific manipulation alters the pattern of ocular dominance in the cortex. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the experiment that we did with in collaboration with Leo was to use these immunotoxins to that their their lab had developed. That was the basis for the collaboration to kill many or close to all of the of the cells, the starburst amacrine cells that generate the cholinergic drive that generates the waves. And when we did that, we altered activity in the retina considerably. The wave activity was altered. The levels of activity were more or less intact, but the segregation occurred normally. Now, keep in mind, this was, so to set the context, this was shortly after the late Larry Katz had published a series of papers arguing, somewhat indirectly, but arguing that ocular dominance columns did not require activity to develop and that they were segregating out 
on the basis of molecular cues, although the molecular cues were not shown in those studies. It was sort of alluding to the idea of molecular cues. So this was the hot debate at the time, right? I joined Davis in 2000, and this was, uh, Larry's papers came out in 1999 and 2000, and this was the hot debate. And so I wanted to get into this puzzle. You know, it, it wasn't that I was trying to piggyback on what Larry was doing at all. I, I just really wanted to figure out what, what was required. And so in our hands, and the paper we published in Science argued that the precise pattern of activity was not important. Now, I want to be fair. This is, you know, 15 years later. I and others, many others, have done a number of other experiments using more targeted manipulations, genetic manipulations, and so forth. And I think now... It's abundantly clear that waves are important for eye-specific segregation and for retinotopic mapping. Were we wrong? Okay, the data in our paper were not wrong. They were correct in the sense that the title was that normal activity is not required. Kind of loathed the title at the time, but we weren't wrong. But what we did was we pushed the field. I like to think that we pushed the field to really dive in and figure out exactly what in the activity is necessary for segregating of axons. And we can't take total credit for that, but much of what took place in that field over the following 15 years involved trying to figure out, really pinpoint what spatial and what temporal patterns of the activity are crucial. And in some ways, it's still an open question because there have been beautiful studies stimulating the two eyes with channel opsins, studies using genetics, the beta-2 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor mutants in particular. You know, even that was its own debate. Do those mice have waves? Do they not have waves? It's been, that field has been a real back and forth, mostly because any manipulation you do, whether it's genetic or pharmacologic, usually there's a, to activity, there's going to be some compensatory mechanism that kicks in. And so if you eliminate acetylcholine, for instance, adenosine takes over and generates the waves. So it's hard to keep those waves down. I, and I've written about this extensively in annual reviews and current opinions, I am of the mind now that the waves are critically important, that the data in our paper are true, but that our interpretation of the data was probably not. Hats off to Carla. Hats off to all the folks who really hammered hard. I mean, we were part of that effort to try and figure out what waves are good for and what they're, what they're necessary for. I should say that, you know, I was among the group that published a paper that said that waves are important for setting up ocular dominance columns. So I had less of an interest in, in being on one or the other side of the controversy. I just really wanted the answers. And in the end, we're still looking for those molecular cues. They have to be there and playing a role in setting up where the eye-specific layers form. That's still an open question. There's still a lot of open questions in that field. Yeah, it just seems like a good example, again, of in science when there's a large war debate, I guess, waging over, you know, a yes or no question when it turns out to be very finely grained and you just have to keep collecting the data, I guess. Yes, that's very astute of you. So when I was growing up in neuroscience, there were these crazy debates now we look back and I can honestly say that they were, they were crazy. It was proto-map versus proto-cortex. Is the cortex, is a tabula rasa, is every area could become something else, or are there molecular cues that make visual cortex, visual cortex, and somatosensory, somatosensory? And people do swapping experiments, yeah. and people will do genetic manipulations. It turns out it's both. If you look at the studies of animals that genetically are mutated so that they don't have thalamocortical afferents, you still see some um, characteristic gene expression in the different cortical areas that designates them as auditory or visual. So in the absence of afferents, those, they still take on their, their expected identity. On the other hand, the afferents are, from the thalamus are clearly playing a role. You can rewire things. Um, McGraw-Cassura has all these beautiful studies showing you can rewire auditory in, visual inputs into auditory cortex or auditory into visual and get swapping of modalities. So it's both. And then there was radial versus tangential migration in the cortex. You know, ask Sue McConnell about this debate. This is a really interesting. You know, so these debates serve an important purpose in that they motivate people to really push hard and get the answers. But in the end, we know it's radial and tangential. And in the end, we know some of the tangential migration is not even coming from cells in the cortex. It's coming from cells down in the, from the eminences, right? And in terms of waves, they're important for certain things and probably not important mm-hmm. for others. Mm-hmm. In term, although I would say that by and large, the waves have been implicated in a very large number of critical wiring right. events. Yeah. And that, that's, that's important right. to note. So this, there are a number of these debates that... And, 
presynaptic versus postsynaptic for LTP. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so think the field has moved on in the sense that people are, approach things differently now. This will probably happen again at some point. But even last summer, the big debate from what I hear at the developmental meeting was about whether or not there are designated pools of progenitors for creating different types of pyramidal neurons in the cortex or whether or not this is a time-locked environmental sequence that where they're multipotent and they change over time. That's still a debate. Actually, really, I think, interesting to uh, explain neuroscience to non-neuroscientists and to frame it in the context of debates yeah, and yeah. to competing extremes. <laughs> and then the answer is, you know, often, well, it's both. Not it just depends on the context. <laughs> that, you know, discovering yeah. the context is really yeah. fun and important. All right. So you actually did your postdoc here at Stanford. You came back to the Bay from Davis and started working with Ben Barris. And I actually found this a little bit puzzling at first because, as many of us here at Stanford know, Ben Barris is the big champion of glia. But I'm not really sure you're working on glia. So why exactly did you decide to come here and uh, work with him? A lot of your work did continue, I think, your interest in retinal development. Yeah, so that can be explained in a brief anecdote. Ben came up to Davis to give a seminar, and I met with him. And during that meeting, I told him that I was developing tools to bring electroporation gene transfer into the animals like ferrets, and hopefully to monkeys, because I was also doing some primate work with Leo Chalupa, and that work was really just done with Leo's lab. And you know, I knew that we want molecular manipulation in animals that had more sophisticated visual systems than the mouse because of the issues we were interested in, magnal parvo streams, color vision, et cetera. So I was telling Ben that we could get genes in the ganglion cells and he got all excited and we started talking about techniques about gene transfer and we started talking about ganglion cells and then I made him two hours late for lunch. With <laughs> <laughs> and I, but we just hit it off. You know, it was this, I remember walking away from the, maybe it was only an hour late, but that's still mm-hmm. pretty late. That was, <laughs> yeah. I remember coming away from that conversation and thinking, wow, you know, that was the most fun I've had talking science in a long time. And it's just something you I've learned to pay attention to. You know, maybe I don't know what it is my enteric nervous system or something, but my butt is very closely linked to my amygdala or whatever parts of my brain and then are linked to whatever intellect I've developed there and wherever that's housed. And somehow I, I remember walking away from that conversation and thinking that would be so much fun to, to engage with Ben every day that way. And so I, I explored a number of different postdocs. I interviewed in his lab and th- it was a little bit of a concern because I knew I was really interested. I had an idea in mind when I finished my graduate studies uh, towards the end there that I wanted to study how parallel pathways are established, but not right eye, left eye. I wanted to study functional streams, magnoparvo-like streams or direction-selective streams. And I knew that in order to do that, we were going to have to develop genetic tools. And there were other people that were interested in that. And I talked to Ben and he said, well, you could come here and do that. Uh, So I did have to think carefully, right? I I wasn't only guided by emotion. I, I had to think carefully, you know, is this the best place for me to go do that? Because Ben is you know, most famous for neuron glial interactions and uh, optic nerve uh, regeneration and myelination. And what would it be like to be kind of an outlier in his lab? But, you know, when he was in David Corey's lab, he didn't work on hair cells, really. And, uh, and so I knew that. And, and Ben basically said, look, if you come here, you can work on anything you want, as long as it's a good question, and it's exciting, and you can get me excited by it. I thought, you know, why not? And and I also was really interested, and I'm still interested in my lab. A third of my lab works on translational neuroscience now. Yeah. Uh, I was really interested in eventually doing something as it relates to disease. And so I went to Ben's lab, and I told myself before, and I, I believe I stuck to this. You can ask the other lab members at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Just because I didn't work on glia didn't mean that I wasn't interested in it. Mm-hmm. Just because I didn't work on myelination didn't mean I wasn't interested in it. And you know, Ben's lab meetings... If they're not legend already, they should be. I mean, they go on for many hours. <laughs> yeah. On any given day, you're learning about development, regeneration, myelination in the time that I was there, subtype specificity and synaptic specificity, human IPS cells. I mean, it's like attending a scientific conference every week with very critical, very, very smart people. And it was a terrific choice because I got to present my ideas to people who basically didn't know much about the system I was working in. They knew ganglion cells, of course, and they knew a few things about the development of that system. But I was trying to develop tools and 
and a kit for labeling and monitoring the development and function of these different parallel pathways from the eye to the brain. And I had to explain it or learn how to explain it in a way that people could get excited about, even if their main interest was, you know, how nodes of Ranvier emerged during development. So yeah, yeah. it seems like that diversity could be. Yeah, helpful. it was wonderful. And, and, yeah. And, you know, I mean, Ben's so smart, he can think about anything. I'm not just saying that because this is a Stanford interview. I mean, let's face it. I, yeah. I mean, very, there are very few people out there that have the capacity to, uh, you know, obtain and maintain so much scientific information. And, and some of the people in the lab were just yeah. freaky yeah. smart and um, really pushed me yeah. and, and frightened me <laughs> into pushing myself harder. You know, I'm a big believer in this. You know, Tom Clendenin was a strong influence on me when I was there. I used to drop in his office all the time. Yeah. You know, Tom has been a strong, you know, has, will often say, you know, you want to put yourself in environments where your, your people are much smarter than you and you're a little bit scared and you're in there making mistakes and correcting your mistakes. And that, that's, that's what you want. I definitely had that in spades. Uh-huh. No. Uh-huh. That sounds great. And the work you were doing there, like you said, you were trying to build this toolbox. And so I just want to ask, because this is a tool that you continue to use, even though addressing maybe some of the questions you, going back to some of the questions of activity dependence that you were working on in grad school. So you uh, worked a lot with these back transgenics and, you know, uh, looking at all the different lines available to you and labeling different retinal subtypes and then using this to your advantage to start to explore circuitry questions that you were interested in. So first of all, maybe can you explain some of that technology? Was it particularly available to you while you were working here? here and and what that resource is about sure so an important component of this and this is just a plug for the vision course at cold spring harbor that i now direct co-direct most of my ideas of what to work (laughs) on have come from a vision course that's been running at cold spring harbor for over 20 years this was used to be called structure function development of the visual system it's now called vision a platform for parsing neural circuits and disease i believe i took that course that my first summer in graduate school and I continued to go back and crash that course for a few lectures each year to follow the issues in vision. You're surrounded by people who are talking about visual neuroscience. David Hubel lectured in that course. It's a tremendous alumni list of visual neuroscientists. Tony Mavshin was one of the founders of the course and Larry Katz, uh, David Fitzpatrick. So I was at that course in Banbury Center, Cold Spring Harbor, where you get a lot of time to think and talk about vision mm-hmm. and realize, you know, we know so little about how these different functional streams in the visual system developed the what and where pathway, the magnoparvoviral pathways, and why? Well, most of that stuff had been studied in monkeys. You, you couldn't really go after it in mice because there were no markers of the relevant subtypes of cells. You couldn't inject a dye into the eye to simply label the motion sensing pathway. And I knew we needed genetics, and Ben and I kicked around a number of different ideas about ways to find molecular markers for the different ganglion cell subtypes. Um, that is, the ganglion cells, of course, you all know, but are cells that convey visual information from the eye of the brain and there are about 20 different subtypes in your eye and my eye and each one of those subtypes responds best to a particular feature in the environment like how bright the environment is or the directional motion of an object or Mm -hmm. something like that so we knew we needed markers and to study the development of those pathways and you know we didn't at that time really have the sense although we eventually found out just how much we could learn about the organizational logic of those pathways if once we had those markers Mm -hmm. and so we thought we would back label the cells from the brain, different targets. We knew they projected different targets most likely, then gene profile them and then look for drivers and then make mice and then screen mice and then hope that some of them were in those cells and those cells only and etc. But one day I was reading an annual review. I, I have to say, I read quite broadly in neuroscience. And when I go to neuroscience, I try and go to, I, I have a, three things I look for at neuroscience. One, I try and find the weirdest poster I can. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's a, just a, it's fun. That's a lot of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, But, you know, to find the weirdest one I can. Two, I try and find some new technique that we're not using that I've never heard of. So the techniques posters are, I definitely go to. And then three, I try and engage in some way in, in, a, in a new idea with somebody in, in my field, which is really hard to do because the ideas tend to be kind of played out over time. You know, and the, the same ideas get kicked around over and over. So I, I read pretty broadly and I picked up an annual review on the back tra- transgenic technology, mostly because I, for some reason I was in, looking into basal ganglia or something, uh, and I forget what the reason was. And I looked at one of the photomicrographs and it was a review by Nat Hines and Mary Beth Hatton and it showed an image, a sagittal view of the brain that included the superior colliculus, one of the major targets of ganglion cells. 
and it had these fluorescent, not fluorescent, it was a DAB stain. I can still see it now. The axons streaming into the superior colliculus, and they were those axons were restricted just to the top yeah. tier of the colliculus. And I thought, wow, well, I know from the vision course and from my textbook work that the smaller beta type cells in the cat and in the monkey tend to project to the upper part of the superior colliculus and not the deeper part. Where did they get this mouse? And what is this mouse? And then I realized that it was the GenSat project and I went online and at that time there were very few images mm-hmm. online already because it was a new project. But at the, of the ones that were there, I realized, oh goodness, all these years that I'd spent looking at the axons of ganglion cells in the brain had allowed me to use that as a kind of diagnostic of what kind of ganglion cells probably gave rise to projections that were in, say, the upper part of the colliculus or the lower. Or if I saw axons in the hypothalamus, I knew that those cells were probably melanopsin intrinsically photosensitive cells. They didn't have the retinas online, but I could infer what they might be. And so I, oh my goodness, I need to get a hold of the eyes of these animals. So I called up Mary Beth Hatton. Uh, I've only done this a couple times in my career, used the phone in this way. I called up Mary Beth Hatton said what is happening to the eyes of all these mice mm-hmm. she said well they're going into the trash <laughs> said no 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 no. we need eyes so they sent us a good number of eyes and i screened them i spent a summer with an undergraduate there mm-hmm. screening the retinas looking for regularly spaced cells because uh, green fluorescent cells because we knew that the ganglion cell subtypes tend to be arranged in mosaics mm-hmm. and yeah. so where we saw mosaics then we would get the mice re-derived or, or cryo-resurrected as it was because um, they weren't maintaining live mice they were cryo-resurrecting them and we ordered a tremendous number of lines we screened a huge number of lines I still have a notebook I think from one source or another whether or not it's from, from GenSat or which are these back transgenics which of course are bacterial artificial chromosomes driving the well, promoter element driving GFP. Right, they had, they had a whole collection where these were randomly inserted, basically. Random insertions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were some issues. You know, every once in a while you get a mouse that didn't look like the one you saw online, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I suffered a little bit late at night from the lack of pride I would have maintained from making all my own mice. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, that was greatly offset by the joy of using those mice very quickly to discover things about how the visual system works mm-hmm. and develops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My lab makes mice, and frankly, a lot of my colleagues use GenSat Crees mm-hmm. and GenSat back transgenics. You know that that project took a little bit of, of flack because it was initially marketed as a sort of gene expression atlas, which it's not, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The some cells don't even express the various genes that right. Uh, it doesn't the the GFP expression doesn't necessarily reflect endogenous promoter expression all the time, right? But, well, well, well put. And the and you know there are promoter, uh, there are sort of uh, positional effects rather. Mm-hmm. So if a gene lands in a sort of muscle enhancer region, then muscles might glow even if muscles don't express that particular promoter. Mm-hmm. So um, and and so there were a number of, of duds in the batch. You know we had mice that we were really excited about based on the retinas or based on the central projections we could see in the online database that didn't pan out. But in the end, we ended up with a small kit of about four to five mouse lines, each with one to two specific subtypes of ganglion cells labeled with GFP and that's just been a gold mine for us when I was in Ben's lab we genetically identified the direction selective ganglion cells and uh, uh, there's a tremendous amount of interest in those cells and so they've been used by many many other labs we've used them and we've done a lot of characterization of these lines that was essentially what I did when I was in Ben's lab although we mm-hmm. we studied the the role of activity and wiring up their specific patterns during development there interesting it turns out that the waves are important for segregating the axons in the lateral sort of um, xy dimension but not z so that they were useful for for some conceptual advance and they've been tremendously useful for uh, as a technical advance skipping ahead to you starting your own lab at ucsd so one of your major contributions is to map out uh, direction selectivity from the retina through the thalamus to the visual cortex are really mapping so kind of um, pursuing that question of labeled lines that you were talking about earlier Right, so mapping out this whole visual pathway. Can you describe the, this recent uh, paper, I believe it was in 2013, where you were able to really trace the, the, this visual pathway through cortex, and specifically you showed that direction-selective cells, uh, right. cells end up in superficial layers of cortex, whereas those that are not direction-selective end up in layer four. And so if you have 
these inputs coming in through layer four and then and then due to intracortical circuitry they get up to superficial layers you know why do you think there's a separate pathway as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just minor corrections so that was a, a alberto cruz martin in my lab 2014 nature paper so he gotcha. um yeah no, no no big deal but just in case people wanted to find it it's a it was, it was last year so that right so the motivation here is important the field of retina and the study of the retina has been you know over a century direction selective ganglion cells were discovered at berkeley over 50 years ago direction selective cells in the cortex were discovered by hubel and weasel also over 50 years ago and those two fields are lo- were largely independent there was never really the idea that the retinal direction selectivity could impact cortical direction selectivity and the the reason is that most of the work done in cortex was in monkeys and cats and most of the work done in the retina most i should say was done in the rabbit i got very motivated to try and figure out where the direction selective cells are are projecting the brain because also you couldn't get a clear answer from anybody you'd say what do direction selective ganglion cells do and people would say well they're responsible for eye movements you'd say why do they project eye movement centers and uh, for some cells it's clear they do but for some direct many direction selective ganglion cells these on-off direction selective cells people would say well we don't know where they project in the brain You'd say, well, then how do you know what they do? And they'd say, well, they like up, down, left, or right. And that's kind of like the rectus muscles of the eye. And so probably eye movements. And I'm like, "Mm, that's a leap in my opinion. So we decided to take on the the rabies technology. We knew they projected the lateral geniculate nucleus because of these back transgenics where we labeled the cells with GFP. We could see the axons in the lateral geniculate. And the lateral geniculate, of course, is the nucleus that relays things up to cortex. So that's when we embarked on the transsynaptic rabies tracing from cortex. And just as you said, they seem to selectively innervate this little portion of the LGN, which we call the shell. And then the Mm -hmm. cells that collect that information project a superficial cortex. So why? We don't have a great answer to that yet what we can say is that if we silence or delete direction selective ganglion cells an animal the receptive fields the direction selective receptive fields of of uh, neurons in v1 are greatly diminished in terms of their direction selectivity whereas orientation selective cells are not so i believe i'm giving a seminar at stanford february 12th i'll I'll be sure to include those data So they are playing a a fundamental role in shaping the the receptive fields of cortical neurons. But why superficial cortex? Okay, so this is where it gets a little bit into the nitty-gritty of the visual pathway. This shell region of the LGN that that collects direction-selective input exclusively and projects to superficial cortex is not unlike another structure in the visual pathway called the pulvinar. And the pulvinar projects to extrastriate cortex and to specifically to the superficial layers. So it resembles pulvinar in many ways, and we could talk about the, the ways in which it does and the ways in which it doesn't, whereas the spot detectors, if you will, the non-direction selective cells that project to the bulk of the LGN, the core of the LGN, they project to the deeper layer. So, so what's going on? Why would you have these two pathways, one for superficial cortex and one for deeper cortex? Well, one idea that we have is because it's such a broad and diffuse projection, this is an idea. This is a hypothesis. This hasn't been thoroughly tested. Because it's such a broad and diffuse projection, you're not really representing direction in specific locations within the visual field by the time you get to the cortex. It's sort of a, a broad swath of direction-selective uh, uh, receptive fields pooled together and sent to, to layer one. Now, why would you do that? One idea that we have, and we're testing this, is that this pathway exists to suppress eye movements when the animal is running. So the idea is that if you're looking, if you're stationary and looking at something moving through the visual field, that you would want to be able to identify the trajectory and speed and probably also the identity of that object. But if you're moving through space, you may want to suppress direction selective inputs. And so we think that this broad pathway up to superficial cortex may actually be linked into a suppressive pathway over on what's actually viewed within the visual field at that time. And so there are ways that one tests this. I'll spell those out more clearly in my talk. But the inputs to layer four, the sort of canonical pathway, 
is where you take spots and you turn them into orientation selective units or you turn them into direction selective units. And that pathway still mystifies us in terms of why you would want to do this two times, you know, set up direction selectivity twice and do it in two separate stations. But that is a much more spatially high fidelity pathway in the sense that an individual receptive field is more accurately represented in layer four on the retina up to layer four as it is uh, to superficial cortex. There's kind of divergence of, of spatial information as you go to superficial cortex. So that's as much as we know. And I, I'm sorry to give you kind yeah. of a wishy-washy answer, but sure. this is yeah. exploratory phases at this sure. point. So just to get this straight, so you've got two different directions. So I, I had been under the impression that the direct direction selective cells were only projecting to the superficial layers, but I guess there's some that's also projecting to layer four. Are there differences in the cell type because you're you know kind of alluding to in inhibitory versus excitatory kind of maybe? Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, the direction selective ganglion cells project to this little shell of the LGN, and that shell of the LGN goes to superficial cortex. The bulk of the LGN, the, the sort of middle part, is getting input from, let's call them spot detectors because they're center surround receptive fields, and those are projecting to layer four. We do not believe that direction selective input is going to layer four. We think that direction selectivity is constructed de novo in layer four, and the direction selective inputs to superficial cortex allow the neurons in superficial cortex to be direction selective because of the retinal ganglion cell tuning. So they're, they're essentially conferring direction selectivity on superficial neurons. Now, all this is, should be, you know, has to be considered in light of the fact that cells in layer five collect input from layer one. Their dendrites go all the way up to layer one. So I don't want to give the impression that it's just deep versus superficial. What's very important is, is to, you know, cells that are deep in the cortex could also be collecting this direction selective input from the retina. And there's a lot of yeah. intracortical circuitry, too, that probably needs to be worked out in order to understand the total interaction of all of these different layers. Right, different right. And right. one active area in my lab now is to, you know, we've mm -hmm. really extended beyond the retina. A lot of what we're doing is to use GenSat and our own um, development of different mouse lines to make identify and make crees where specific categories of geniculate neurons are labeled or cortical mm -hmm. neurons are labeled to be a to really parse the pathway carefully and really mm -hmm. understand which layers not just deep or superficial but really you know 5b is receiving a combination of direction selective and non-direction selective input in that and that that sort of thing as well as to manipulate the various cell types using chemical genetics and optogenetics and really understand mm -hmm. what they're contributing to the visual perception of the animal so mm -hmm. um, that brings us into the realm of behavior we're doing a lot mm -hmm. of that mm -hmm. and there are great visual task now for mice it's taken a few years to get that uh, up yeah but uh, this is gonna it's gonna take a good five to ten years to to work out all this and we're certainly not the only group doing this but on roscoe's working on this, uh, these issues and and other uh, other labs as well sounds yeah. really exciting aside from all of this parsing out the uh, vision and the different pathways of vision and how that all works out you also seem to be interested in injury and disease as you referred to earlier in part because, you know, you were surrounded by this a little bit in Ben Barris's lab, but I'm sure also because there are um, diseases to be looked at in the retina. Have you published on this yet, or are you actively working on it? And are there any diseases that you're particularly interested in? A paper coming out February 4th on the glaucoma work that I'll tell you about briefly. And then we have a paper that's in the early phases now, but should be submitted soon on regeneration. So let me just briefly say that, you know, I still maintain and a lot of my lab is working uh, an interest in and a lot of my lab is working on developmental issues in the visual pathway where we've been using these various mouse lines to understand how neurons select targets during development. And you will not find a textbook chapter on this issue. You can find a, a textbook chapter on how axons steer through choice points. You can find a chapter on how axons find the right location in a topographic map, but you will not find a textbook chapter on how mammalian visual neurons decide to say collect to connect to the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the hypothalamus versus the uh, lateral geniculate nucleus. This is true for a lot of sensory pathways. You know, we've been pursuing the various genes and molecules involved in that cadherins and contactins, and some of those stories are out and some are on the way. But for a long time, you know, we've been putting at the end of our grants, and we always say in our talks, you know, if we understand these developmental mechanisms, they might also prove useful for trying to uh, rewire injured visual systems. So we decided to actually walk that and put some time and some effort behind it. And so what we've been studying is uh, two problems. One is a simple question. If an axon can regenerate, will it find and reconnect to the correct targets? Seems like a straightforward question, and yet there's no answer. Why? Because until very recently, there weren't ways to get axons to grow sufficiently long distances that you could evaluate that in, in a meaningful way. And so we've been using the various 
ganglion cell specific marked lines, mouse lines, and inducing optic, doing optic nerve crush, and then inducing regeneration by tickling any number of different pathways. The mTOR pathway is one of them, although there are others. And we've been asking the question of whether or not these axons can rewire to the correct targets or whether or not they wander off into the wrong targets. You could imagine that putting direction-selective ganglion cell axons, rewiring them into your hypothalamus might be a bad idea because every time something moves through your visual field, you reset your circadian clock. So this is the next, to us, we, we think of this as the next big milestone in the field of regeneration. We need to understand the answer to this issue. Um, we're also very interested in glaucoma. And here I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it, it is because of the very, very generous support of a glaucoma foundation in San Francisco, the Glaucoma Research Foundation, which essentially found labs that weren't working on glaucoma and said, if we supplied the, the finances, would you work on glaucoma? because there's a great need for this. And we said, yes, you know, glaucoma is a disease of pressure in the eye, among other things, but where ganglion cells die. And ganglion cells are what I know. That's all I've ever worked on for, goodness, uh, 17 years now. So we said, absolutely. And so we, we dove into the literature, and it turns out one of the fundamental questions in that area is whether or not that specific types of ganglion cells die off early in glaucoma. And the reason this would be important to know is that there are actually decent treatments for glaucoma. The drops that lower pressures are pretty effective in reducing the neuron loss. But people often don't know that they're losing these neurons or pressures can be normal until many of them are gone and you have huge scotomas, blind spots in your visual field. And so we've been using the mouse genetics that I've described to tr- in a glaucoma model where we inject beads into the eye, which increases pressures, gives the animals glaucoma, to discover that there's a very specific subtype of ganglion cell called the transient off-alpha cell, which shows changes, dendritic changes, within days of an eye pressure increase. And eventually those are the first cells to die. And Rachel Wong's lab at University of Washington has seen similar things. E.J. Chicholnitsky, now there at Stanford, is, I think these are unpublished data, has also seen similar effects. Use all of us using different approaches and we talk all the time, so it's friendly. But it's very clear that there's a subpopulation of ganglion cells that are more vulnerable than others at early stages of the disease. And so you could imagine developing visual field tests that would probe the function of these cells and perhaps give the indication that somebody should be taking drops um, or getting treated for glaucoma long before you would detect that they, they needed that treatment had you used a standard visual field test or simply or the traditional eye exams that ophthalmologists now use. So we're very excited about that work. That's the work coming out on um, February 4th. That's a journal neuroscience paper. Um, it's a, and we're also getting into the more molecular guts of, of why ganglion cells die and uh, why those cells in particular. It's incredibly gratifying to work on disease. Uh, you know, this is something I encourage every graduate student and postdoc to think about doing at some point. We're really all over the place in the sense we're doing development function. Just, yeah. you know, we're a cuttlefish, we're got monkeys and mice and <laughs> just, just trying to carpet bomb the visual system. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but at some level, when you talk to, we, I go to these foundation events and when you talk to people with glaucoma, it really brings it home. You know, we're so dependent on vision to get around. You know, why not try? You know, I had the unfortunate experience of my graduate advisor became very sick and died uh, quite young at 50 and you know that was strongly influential Uh, we were already working on some of the stuff but I realized you know if I if I'm going to get hit by a bus at least I took a a good hard crack at problem I'm serious about about this and maybe it's just getting older but you start to realize that the, the gap between what you do and what you could do is usually a matter of, of getting some reagents, talking to the right people, and diving in. And, and it's encouraged me to be more fearless and not to be so concerned about moving into an area that I know very little about. You often find that you bring a fresh perspective and that if you're a good listener and you pay attention to the criticism and you pay attention to what, what the important issues are, that, you, that you'll have something important to, to bring. The it's not just the patients, but yeah. it, it, it feels different to publish a paper on disease. It just feels different. And I'm, I'm very excited. I have to say, of all the papers that we've published, I've, I've gotten a special gratification from each one of them. But this one brought a, a kind of satisfaction that I hadn't really experienced before because it's sort of like, we're, hey, we're, we're actually doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, it, it's a journal neuroscience paper. It's not a science paper, yeah. but it's a fine journal. Yeah. And um, there'll be more in that department. And, and now, yeah. now, now we can't be held back. Yeah. I think it's cool when you have um, yeah. basic scientists that are really getting into mechanisms of yeah. disease and yeah. doing translational research yeah. in, in some capacity in addition yeah. to the basic science research. Yeah. It must be particularly motivating. Yeah, also MDs are nice people. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, right. They're really nice people. 
And um, they may not be impressed by some of the same things that basic scientists are impressed by. But at some level, that reflects a purity that, that we should all keep in mind because you can have all these papers and all these things, but, you know, they're interested in what they can do for their patients. And again, you know, I love basic science. I mean, I live, as I mentioned, I got into this because I'm interested in animal behavior and I still am. But it's, uh, there's something, there's something there. And, and I, I, again, I just would encourage students and postdocs who are thinking about making a, a transition. I, I see a lot of people leaving the field because they're, they're discouraged about how hard things are. You know, we, you need all the motivation you can get and there's nothing more power. I go to these seeing eye dog things. Cause I like to bring, my dog likes playing with the seeing eye dogs, even though he's not supposed to. And, um, and I, and I do some, I have yeah, done some volunteer work for that. And I, I met a young woman who has glaucoma and a seeing eye dog. It's really enhanced her quality of life. She's quite blind. And, you know, I doubt we're going to save her vision, unfortunately, uh, at least not anytime soon. Her uh, degeneration is quite far along. But, you know, it, there's something to be said for really trying and, and, and getting outside your comfort zone in terms of, of taking on new problems. It, it certainly made me feel braver. So you mentioned uh, earlier in the interview that you had these uh, cuttlefish that you worked on. Uh, if you just want to speak really quickly about what, what they're doing in your lab, I think that would be uh, interesting. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is a crazy story so i was driving on 880 when i was a postdoc and i heard a npr interview with oliver Sacks, and he i won't do his accent although i wish i, I could um and he was talking mm, about right. the cuttlefish and what he said was the cuttlefish is this remarkable organism because of all its incredible camouflage and because of how sophisticated they are and all that. but it also has a remarkable behavior, which is that it at once is a predator and prey animal. It sits there on the floor of the ocean or swimming around with its eyes on the side of its head, looking in panoramic vision to try and see whether or not there are predators to eat it. But at the same time, when it sees something it wants to eat, its eyes translocate to the front of its head, and it requires that translocation to generate binocular vision, strike, and capture its prey. And I heard this, and I thought no chance. There's just no chance because that means that a neuron in the optic lobes of the brain at one, po at one moment in time is viewing different portions of visual space and then seconds wow. later is viewing the same portions of visual, visual space and it generates stereo and they're able to... How, how would the circuitry adapt? So it's crazy. So yeah. when we got to UC San Diego, I hired a very talented technician histologist from up in Davis that I knew from Davis. If we had another three hours, I could talk about strategy of setting up a lab, but... Um, Oh, another time getting the getting someone as valuable as Fong was was wonderful because he he's fearless in terms of setting things up he's just can build anything so when we got down here and we were set up and we got our first grant we were working our developmental neuroscience and our systems neuroscience and things were up and running I said you know it's my startup money and I want to go after this problem I want to know if this is true so we went down to Pet Kingdom asked if they had cuttlefish and of course they said no but I met a kid there, uh, this uh, kind of long-haired surfer kid. His name is Diego. And he said, well, there's this guy out in the desert who raises cuttlefish. And it was this kind of weird thing. And he said, but I could probably get you some eggs and we could hatch them. And I said, well, then what do you get tanks? And he said, well, you know, you need these tanks and you got to have a sump and you have to have all this stuff and salt water and you got to pipe in the – and I thought, well, this is pretty involved. Do you want a job? And he said um, – Sure. And so he came to work for us. And so what we did was, and this was not a hugely expensive project, but it was at, I've been absolutely delighted by it because we now have about, uh, I can say about 20 different tanks. We have a cuttlefish hatchery. We have hatched these little baby cuttlefish. They grow up. They're magnificent animals in terms of their coloration and their camouflage. You can go online and look at the, all the beautiful work that Roger Hanlon has done at MBL and Wattol on this stuff. And Indeed, they do this. So we've, and it, the story gets a little weirder even because it turns out that their prey capture is extremely fast. Um, they have this ballistic tentacle movement that where the thing shoots out, grabs the shrimp, and then they stuff it back in their mouth. And so we realized we needed to do high-speed imaging, and I've always liked photography. Lubert Stryer there at Stanford is a magnificent photographer. He and I used to talk about photography all the time, and he's done some amazing nature photography. I wanted to do high-speed video recordings of ballistic prey capture. So the, it turns out the company that makes these cameras that show like exploding pumpkins and basketball slow motion dunks. And when you watch on TV is a company that is off Miramar road here in San Diego. So we went out there and we started 
demoing some of the cameras. And it turns out most of these cameras are purchased by the military for imaging explosions. We bought two of them, and what we've been doing is triangulating the images so that we can multi-view imaging station where the cuttlefish is put in there. We have a shrimp that's tethered. This is all being done with uh, automated software that that tracks the position of the eyes and is also tracking the tentacle movement. And indeed, the animals translocate their eyes to the front. They generate as much stereo as you and I have overlap in central visual fields and if we do a lid suture so sort of classic cubal and weasel type lid suture they miss their prey now what's amazing is they miss their prey for about a week and we have to hand feed them to keep them alive but then they start generating depth perception another way they start moving their head from side to side like a boxer slipping a punch what they're doing is they're generating motion parallax so somehow the cuttlefish is smart enough to use a compensatory mechanism to generate depth perception and I could go on and on what these guys, if you walk in the room, so this is amazing. If you walk in the room and they don't recognize you because they do seem to recognize people, they'll place one eye on you. They'll place one eye on where you're looking. And then they'll camouflage half their body, the half of the body that you see. In other words, they're telling according to what their other eye views. In other words, the cuttlefish has, quote unquote, theory of mind. It's presenting to you a two-dimensional picture of what it thinks you see and therefore is trying to hide for you by presenting the same camouflage. They're just awesome. And we have a paper that we're, we're submitting. You know, there's some NSF, potentially some NSF funding for this. But Again, it just boils down to the fact that, you know, there are a lot of punishing features in this game. Uh, There are a lot of wonderful features about being a scientist. But anything that I can, if I can just walk in the room and feel like I've had two cups of coffee just by walking in the room and I'm excited by, I mean, that's just great for my scientific program all around. And it's, it's certainly great for my livelihood. And the cuttlefish have brought so much pleasure to the lab. You know, if there's ever something that you're just burning to do, just, you know, just set it up. I'm disappointed we won't get to hear about that actually for your talk. But uh, on that note, um, can you give but can you give us a brief preview of what you might be talking about when you come visit us here at Stanford? So one thing that we're actively pursuing is the issue of whether is a sort of cell type evolution and homology issue. I'm going to talk about a number of things. It won't be completely disjointed, but uh, I'll talk about circuits and I'll talk about uh, probably development of circuits that's in there as well. You know, the people who work on primate visual system, the amazing, you know, the history there, most of what we know about visual function and probably from circuitry is from primate work, right? This is before the mouse became the popular model. They will say that it is an open question whether or not many of the same cell types, for instance, direction-selected ganglion cells, even exist in the macaque monkey. And if they exist, whether or not they exist in appreciable numbers. And if they exist in appreciable numbers, whether or not they contribute to central vision by, through the, the genicular cortical pathway. And so one really important area to, to develop in the upcoming years, and it's something I'll talk about on February 12th, is the development of molecular tools to parse circuits in non-human primates. And so we've been taking the molecular signatures of the direction-selected ganglion cells gleaned from mouse and developing reagents and approaches using the rabies virus system and the adenovirus system to selectively label and identify the cells and circuits that are molecularly the same and perhaps, and I'll leave the sort of a, a you know a dot, 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 you'll have to see the talk to get the answer, and perhaps answer the question once and for all of whether or not there are direction-selective ganglion cells in the monkey. And, you know, you might say, okay, well, if there are, if there aren't, what's the implication of that? Well, I think that there are a couple different things. One is whether or not the molecular signatures of cells can be used to identify homologies from mouse to other species, because ultimately, of course, we're interested in human brain function. And the other is to really try and establish what are the themes, what are the motifs that neural circuits have used, visual circuits, as one moves from a animal like the mouse to a more, what I guess you would call a more cephalized animal like the monkey, where there's this massive expansion of the cortex. You know, how is it you establish different receptive field properties? How is it that you encode different features of the environment depending on the behavioral niches of the animal um, and the requirements of the animal? So I'll be talking a lot about that. And this is a growing area of you were starting to move into the marmoset a little bit. There's the idea that, and there's an active area now, the Salk Institute held a, a, a meeting on this about marmoset transgenesis, that the marmoset 
has a, a number of advantages over the mouse for higher level cognitive tasks and for foveal vision. Certainly they're a listen cephalic cortex, meaning you could smooth. So there's a, there's an opportunity here that we're, we're interested in uh, pursuing, and I'll be talking about those data. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, um, the, the last portion of our Yeah, interview? so we usually like to end here with um, a couple of uh, rapid-fire questions. So we're just going to ask uh, a few brief questions, and you can just answer with whatever is on the top of your mind. So the first question, if you're ready, is if you could speak to yourself, and we really mean yourself, Andrew, um, as a grad student, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> On the cot in the lab. <laughs> no, I, I think exactly. Um, oh, yes. This is a good one. Mm. Make sure you go to the dentist. <laughs> I had a lot of cavities drilled as a postdoc because uh, I collected my teeth as a graduate student. Oh, I see. Gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. To the dismay of my mother. She, was, <laughs> she still says brush my teeth. Yeah. Uh, you've worked on the visual system for a very long time. As you, um, so what is your second favorite sensory system of any animal in the animal kingdom? I've been strongly influenced by this stuff that David Ginty is doing. It's kind of a neuroscience answer, but I find the skin sensing system, the somatosensory system, incredibly interesting. I don't know that it has anything to do with my interest in animal behavior or in the, you know, you mentioned animal kingdom. So I sort of of went there in in my mind, searching for examples. But the visual system to me is the coolest one, of course, right? And so I love diving birds and the fact that they can adjust for the refractory index of the water and, and, you know, target fish. And so that's all vision. I think somatosensation is is fascinating. And I've been, every time I hear one of Ginty's talks or I, uh, read one of his papers. They just had this thing about direction selective um, hair follicle cent- uh, cells or whatever it is, the direction selective cells in the in the skin. I'm, I'm, I think it's miraculous. I'm his largest organ on the body. It's a fit, fit, uh, sensory organ. It's amazing. Yeah. Bringing this back to um, Stanford, you know, we know you did your postdoc with uh, Ben Barris. Can you uh, give us your favorite Ben Barris moment? <laughs> That's impossible. Uh, <laughs> there's so many. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think, you know, there isn't one story, but I had so many great conversations with Ben. I can just distinctly recall him coming, walking out of his office in the late afternoon or evening and coming into that little, he has so many little lab spaces there, but the one just next to his office, not across, but next to, and he would grab those baby carrots out of the fridge and he would start munching on the baby carrots while he was talking about (laughs) something and we'd start talking about something. (laughs) Inevitably, he would hand me the bag of baby carrots. (laughs) <laughs> or just like there, there would come a moment where he would hand me the bag of baby carrots. I don't know what that meant or if it meant anything meaningful at all. But then he would just walk back into his office. And <laughs> <laughs> like, keep going. <laughs> I, lo- I really love the baby carrots. I don't know why. Most just for the chewing sensation. I don't even think they mm-hmm. taste that good or anything. Mm-hmm. But there's so many conversations where we're just sitting there, you know, baby chomping on baby carrots, and then he would just hand me the bag of baby carrots and then walk back in. You know, that just mm-hmm. for me captures a lot of. Um, what's so wonderful about working for someone like Ben. And, you know, one of the things that uh, is so precious with advisors, and you realize that when you, when you're, when you become one, unstructured time. And Ben is so busy and yet he still finds time to have these off the cuff discussions about whatever it is that that's exciting him at that moment or exciting you at that moment. And that unstructured time, you know, you'd think that you'd remember these, these huge, like roaring of the crowd moments in, in your, your career, or when you got a job or when a paper got through. And it's actually that's that, that, that really does it for me because that's the stuff that, that keeps you going day to day, you know, keep the baby carrots coming. <laughs> I knew he was a very, um, and is a very caring mentor, but you know, looking out for the health and nutrition of his of uh, both, charges, yeah. postdocs and graduate yeah. students, that's, that's a great, another level. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Lauren Frank, professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Mark Padalina, David Lipton, Andrew Gundren, Yet Nguyen, and myself, Ada Yu. Adam Fuchsal and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, Community. Thank you.